This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. So uh, moving on to uh, the next uh, speaker, um, Dr. John Roberts. Um, Dr. Roberts needs very little introduction. Uh, he has been the director of the abdominal uh, transplant program and a great leader for us for the last 17 years. And as I mentioned, that uh, John is uh, um, taking on new challenge uh, to chair the Department of Surgery, but he's still taking a lot of calls, spending a lot of time in the OR, playing a lot of tennis, and, uh, and also still the driving force behind this remarkable growth and uh, success of the life donor transplant program. So uh, again, he will share his perspective on this really important area of liver transplantation. So uh, John, thank you. Just don't put on that timer. I know. (laughs) I thought maybe you could keep up, Nora, but... (laughs) Well, thank you, Francis, and thank you, Tony. Nice to see you again. Well, I've been doing this chair job for a month, and uh, in that time I've discovered two things. One is is that I have a lot more appreciation for what Nancy has done over the last nine years, or I, I guess it's been longer than that, 17 years, <clears throat> and that she's a lot happier <laughs> now that she's quit. She's still doing transplants. <clears throat> she's in Chicago today at some uh, meeting. So anyway, the basic principle of our living donor program and, and everybody's living donor program is that we wouldn't do this operation if there were enough deceased donor organs to go around. And that's really because there's no sense in putting a living donor at risk if we had enough uh, <clears throat> deceased donor uh, organs to go around, and, and there's a higher risk of biliary complications, um, vascular complications, because we're using, instead of using the trunk of the blood vessels and bile ducts that go to the liver, we can only use the branches, and those <clears throat> branches, are like the branches of a tree, are smaller and, and frequently are more in number, and so they're more difficult to work with. And, and there's really no benefit to the donor if, uh, in terms of the health of the recipient if we had a deceased donor organ available. But this is our problem, that our MELD score. As you guys all know, the MELD score represents your uh, risk of death at 90 days. And you can see that in this, let's see, is there a pointer on this? Anyway, uh, uh-oh, I got the, did I get the timer going? <laughs> it's like the, the hook. Uh, anyway, you can see that, you know, if you look over there where it says 30, that's MELD score 30, and you can go up and see that the risk of um, mortality at 90 days is, uh, what, about 50% or so. And, and that's where we don't transplant many people uh, Northern California until their MELD score gets up to, you know, 30, 35. So you can see that the 90-day risk of death for our patients in this area is quite high. <clears throat> so, <clears throat> sorry. And if you look around the country, you can see that California, being a dark state like some of the other uh, parts in the country, 
our, our median mel, uh, trans, uh, score transplant is actually 32, and this was in 2011, and it hasn't gotten any better. If you also look at where this living donor transplant is used around the country, you can see that if you look at sort of the breakout, the uh, MELD score at transplant in the various areas that what we call the DSA or the OPO, where uh, the organs are distributed in, the, in those areas, you can see that in the, in the area where there's the highest MELD score at transplant, you can see there's the greatest use of living donor transplants, and it's about a 30-fold use as compared to those uh, OPOs or areas where, where there's a lot of deceased donors available. So this is our <coughs> um, looking at our outcomes for our uh, patients on the waiting list. There's, this is a calculator. It's available on the web. There's a organization called the, the SRTR, or <clears throat> Scientific Registry of Transplant Recipients, and they have this calculator, and you can go on and plug in the, the blood type of the patient, and this is, this is a patient of old blood type with a MELD score in the 15 to 24 range, and this looks at what happens at 90 days. You can see that 88% uh, percent of patients are, are on the list. There's a, a group of patients that um, have died, others that are removed, and then the people that are getting transplants are either <clears throat> getting sick and getting a deceased donor transplant or getting a living donor transplant. So we looked at our uh, patients that we listed between 2010 and 2012. We listed about 667 patients with MELD scores of in the 10 uh, to 22 range, and these are excluding people with hepatocellular carcinoma exceptions. And you can see that <clears throat> the outcomes of these patients is that there's... <clears throat> Um, about half of them uh, remain on the waiting list. The other half either die or get transplanted. So despite, you know, being relatively well in terms of these patients going on the list at a MELD score of 10 to 22, that you can see that over time that the outcome of these patients is, is not good. And so that's why we need living donor transplant because we can't get these pa patients transplanted. And so if you look at about 27% about of the patients get uh, too sick or die while waiting, and about 22% um, of the patients uh, will get a transplant over that two-year period. So when we look at the, at the benefit of living donor transplant across the, state, the United States, it's really that you're helping those patients who are waiting for transplant and preventing them from dying while waiting so that they if you look at the study that's been done, they have about a 56% lower mortality if you have a living donor as compared to a patient with a deceased donor. And previously, we were giving patients with hepatocellular carcinoma a lot of advantage to get transplanted. And over the last couple of years, that advantage, there's been a recognition that we are giving people with hepatocellular carcinoma too much advantage, and that has changed so that we're giving those patients much less advantage. And so now <clears throat> patients, particularly those patients who have multiple lesions, are uh, better candidates for living donor transplant than waiting until their, their MELD score gets rises high enough in order to get a transplant. And so you can see that, <clears throat> you know, this is what happens to the patients that have a living donor transplant versus um, those patients who have a deceased donor transplant. And you can see that the outcomes in terms of uh, overall outcomes in terms of retransplantation and, and death is, is actually better with living donor transplant than compared to deceased donor transplant. 
So the recipient benefit really depends on the MELD score in the area, and our MELD scores, as you know, in all of California now are uh, sort of a, a highest in the in the country. New York, Chicago, and parts of Texas also have very high MELD scores at the time of transplant. And the um, with these changes in our allocation for preference for patients with hepatocellular carcinoma, we're now seeing benefit to those patients who who have living donors. We put, give this <clears throat> to the recipient at, at an increased risk to the donor. So the risk of liver donation is one to two per thousand, which is to be compared to donation of a, of a kidney, which is one per thousand, or don, bone marrow donation, which is one per 10,000. So we are putting somebody at risk in order to save somebody's life. In general, if you look at it, we as physicians, when when there's sort of surveys done and people talk about it, that we're we're willing to accept to accept about a one percent mortality risk in in living donation in terms of uh, what physicians tend to be comfortable with. We tend to be a little, I think, paternalistic. If you look at this chart here, which was a a um, a public poll done, you can see that the the public is willing to take a 50% risk of death to save a life in li- through living donor transplant. So we have a, between what the public feels and what we feel <coughs> as physicians, there's quite a difference. And this was brought out to me in a conference where I was talking to a, <coughs> a group of, uh, of patient care coordinators and nurses, and, and they um, were and I had one of those audience response systems, and I asked them, you know, what risk were they willing to take in order to uh, save, you know, the life of a loved one? And they said, well, you know, and they, we went through a number of choices, and it turned out they were also willing to accept about a 40% risk of death in order to save a life of a loved one. I was sort of astounded by that. That seemed like an amazing thing. And I, and I mentioned that, that I <clears throat> afterwards, and one of them came up to me, and they said, well, you have to understand who you're talking to. First off, these are women. They're, they're used to sacrifices. They're nurses. They're used to taking care of people, and they're not talking about their spouse. <laughs> so they're talking about their children, obviously. So, you know, if you look at the worldwide deaths, it's, uh, <clears throat> it's, it's a little hard to come to this number, that, but there's been people have done various studies, and it Looks like that the overall number of deaths for living donor transplants about 23, which gives us our, our rough estimate of in terms of the risk of death. There are centers in the world, uh, the as you may know, in both Korea and China or uh, Taiwan. There's um, if you don't have a living donor transplant, basic a living donor, basically you aren't going to get a transplant, and so. There in Korea, there's one center. They do about 350 living donor transplants a year, and in, and in Taiwan, I think they do about 250 living donor transplants a year. And they both of those centers have done enormous number of transplants without having a donor death. So obviously, you can <coughs> you can do it with a very experienced team. So <coughs> one of the things we do think is that we can minimize the donor risk. It's related to the complexity of the operation. It's also related to the amount of liver. Um, that's removed from the donor. So when we started doing living donor transplants, we would give usually the lateral segment, which is about 25% of the liver from an, an adult to their child. And the risk appears to be lowest in that situation and increases as we uh, increase the size of the uh, liver that's donated from the left lobe, which is about 40% of the liver, to, uh, to the right lobe, which is about 60%. 
And there's been various studies that have suggested that donation of the left lobe is associated with a lower risk of death. Um, <clears throat> this was a, a study uh, done in uh, a survey, a worldwide survey, and they found that, that, that there appeared to be a lower risk of death, though it didn't actually become statistically significant, um, probably because of the relatively small numbers of uh, patients that had died that were reported to the survey. There, as far as I know, there haven't been any uh, liver of donors that have required their own liver transplant in terms of those uh, who donated a left lobe. There has been some, uh, a few um, donors that have needed their own right lobe transplants. That's usually with a program that's just starting out and <clears throat> makes a mistake and, and damages the remaining liver. That's estimated to be about 1 in 2,000 to 1 in 4,000. So there is uh, risk in terms of <clears throat> donation liver. The A2L study group, which we were a part of, uh, estimated the risk of morbidity was about 40%. <clears throat> um, we have recently looked at our complication rate, and I'll show you that in a minute, which was actually <clears throat> uh, somewhat lower. But what we're really trying to do in this situation, remember, is that we're really trying to um, <clears throat> provide the recipient with a benefit and the donor takes some risk to do that. The <clears throat> donor definitely wants to have a successful uh, outcome in the recipient and also wants to have successful donation with minimal morbidity uh, related to that. The recipient wants to minimize the donor risk, but they also want to have a, a successful donor outcome and then also want to have a successful transplant. So this is the tension between the donor uh, trying to do the best for the donor and trying to do the best for the recipient. And it's really trying to figure out what this balance is between the donor risk of death, recipient risk of death, and then the donor risk of complications <coughs> um, and the recipient risk of complications. And it, it looks like if you sort of look at the overall picture that, you know, if you look at the number of recipients saved for donor death and the risk of donor death is 1%, you can see that, that you <coughs> save, uh, for every donor death, you're going to save about... Uh, one-to-one uh, -one in terms of the recipient saved. If it's the risk of donor death is half, which we think of that, which we think with a, uh, it is with the left lobe, you can see you save about twice as many recipients per donor death. And so that's sort of the trade-off in terms of the left lobe versus the right lobe. <clears throat> if the, if the lo donor death is, much low, is a lot lower, you can see that you would save uh, <clears throat> 1,000 recipients for uh, every donor death. So there's been several studies that have compared the complications by graft type. There's, um, <clears throat> there's three studies that suggest that the, the complications are, are roughly similar between the right lobe and the left lobe. Uh, seven suggested that the right lobe donation has a higher risk of complications as compared to left lobe. And three, two studies had <clears throat> um, less than 3% uh, of the donors actually had donated uh, left lobes. So the lateral segment appeared to be uh, the safest. The complications of left lobe grafts were about 20 to 50 percent the complication rate of right lobe grafts, and there was a higher rate of biliary complications after right lobe donation. So there's this benefit and risk between um, <clears throat> the donor and recipient. The problem with the left lobe graft is that it's, it's relatively small compared to a right lobe graft, and so the <clears throat> recipient takes a greater risk in terms of having a small graft because if there's a complication, they don't tolerate those complications as well as if the graft is small. There have been a number of studies w uh, looking at this at various centers around the world. Um, 
they found that the, in these studies that in general the smaller graph did not seem to make a difference in terms of, out, of recipient outcomes, but overall I, I think the general sentiment is, is that the recipients do have some higher risk of uh, mortality and, and um, graph loss if they get a smaller graph than compared to a larger graph. So in terms of our adults adult program, <coughs> Francis had told you, you know, we've been expanding our uh, program because of the need for uh, living donor transplantation. We've been doing sort of more left lobes over time than we did before, <coughs> um, primarily to try and decrease the uh, donor morbidity, at the same time trying not to sacrifice uh, the recipients to um, <coughs> getting a graph that's too small. And so that's sort of the, the tension but that we're trying to work with in terms of the donor and the recipient. In terms of our outcomes of right lobes <coughs> versus left lobes, you can see there's no statistically significant difference in terms of the um, <coughs> patient survival or the graph survival between recipients of right lobe graphs or left lobe graphs. Um, and you can see that, you know, if you get a, a left lobe graft, you're obviously getting a smaller lobe graft in terms of the uh, graft weight to recipient weight or graft weight to the standard liver volume than compared to a, a, a left lobe graft. And so you can see that, that the um, left lobe grafts are, are about 30% about of the estimated volume that the recipient needs, and a right lobe graft is about 50% of the estimated volume. When we've looked at our overall complication rates, we had about a 20% complication rate, which we think is quite good in terms of our complication rates for uh, overall complication rates in the donor. There, we didn't find a great deal difference in complications between the right lobe and left lobe, at least didn't reach statistically significant. The so left lobe donors tended to go home just a little bit earlier. In terms of our complications, typically the <coughs> complications have been ones that are, haven't been major issues, uh, uh, ileus, uh, biloma that required drainage, uh, a couple hernias, some wound infections, atelectasis, and then uh, other variety of uh, complications. So you can see, as Francis said, you know, we've been expanding our living donor program primarily because the need available. We're well aware of the risk to the donor, and we're trying to minimize the risk to the donor and still have successful outcomes in the recipient. So <clears throat> I think it's important that, that to, risk, to, rel, to recognize the risk of death and for our patients in Northern California, <clears throat> even those patients with low MELD scores uh, have a significant risk of dying after be listed. You have to remember our median MELD score at transplant is sort of now in the 30 to 35 range, which we showed earlier is, has a, represents a significant risk of 90-day mortality. And we have these patients that, that migrate from low MELD score to high MELD score, and you're all sort of familiar with those patients that are sort of, you know, getting along, and then all of a sudden they have a bleed or they have spontaneous bacterial peritonitis or some other complication. All of a sudden they get very sick, and some of those patients get sick enough that their MELD score goes up and they can get transplanted, and that's a good <coughs> outcome, except they're usually in the, they're going from the ICU to the operating room, or those patients... <coughs> um, get too sick and then they die, or they get better and then they get back into this sort of, you know, MELD score 25 kind of range and, and struggle and wait, have to wait until they can get sick again. And hopefully that next time they get sick enough to get a transplant, they um, <coughs> can, 
can stay sick enough long enough without getting too sick. So we have a frank discussion with the patients about their risk of death without living donor transplant. We're trying to decrease the barriers for the donors in order to come forward. As you can imagine, it's difficult to ask your loved one, your friend, or your <coughs> relative to uh, if they want to donate a portion of their liver to you, and we're trying to educate patients on how to ask uh, <coughs> their family for donation. And, and we're trying to use both the right and the left lobe to try and decrease those um, patients that, can, that can't donate uh, because of an anatomic problem. So really we're trying to balance this donor and recipient benefit, and we have <coughs> recognized that there's some risk uh, to the donor uh, to give... <clears throat> to give the recipient life, but we're, and we're always trying to find that uh, right balance. And I want to thank all the people that's helped with this whole project of getting patients to transplant. Thank you very much. Uh, questions for Dr. Roberts. So um, can, I, can I ask you... Um, um, Take HCC as an example. Um, we've had discussions before. How far, what's your opinion in terms of how far we push the envelope for that? So, you know, when, when we look, talk about HCC and, and living donor transplant, you know, there are people with HCC that we do taste or RFA. They have one lesion and they're, <clears throat> you know, stable and, and don't have, you know, a per- evidence of a, of a progression, and, and uh, Bilal and Neil <coughs> Maida and Francis have looked at that. Those patients, a lot of those patients may not need transplant. They can wait. The patients that, that <coughs> we end up getting, we end up transplanting to those patients maybe with two lesions who've had, you know, multiple um, embolizations or those patients who are outside the Milan criteria that have been downstaged to within Milan, but we know that they're, you know, they have a risk of, of tumor progression. So the real question is, is what about patients that have, you know, tumors that are well outside of Milan and and whether we would do living donor transplant for that? Because, you know, when you think, when you look at the data from the study, the Milan study, where you had patients that within Milan had about a 85 or 90 percent survival at four years after transplant, the people that are outside of Milan had a 40 percent four-year survival. So those patients, none of those patients actually really did really well. We think we can sort through those patients and find those patients that are going to do well by downstaging them and waiting what we call the blade and wait approach. But <clears throat> we haven't gone to the point of transplanting people outside of the Milan criteria. You know, we have the UCSF criteria. We don't. We haven't been transplanting those patients outside of that because the recurrence rates are too high, and we don't want to put the risk of, put the donor at risk <clears throat> in order to give for a, for a small benefit in the recipient. Though, you know, when you talk to the donor recipient, say, well, you know, what's his chances of living without this? And they'll we'd say, well, you know. After, if you have a, if we haven't been able to downstage your tumor into UCSF criteria, you know the chances of you surviving are probably 10 percent or less at four years, and it, and probably somewhat better with living donor transplant. But uh, you know the, they say, well, let's go ahead and do it. But I think that's we we our concern is for the donor in that situation. We want to have enough recipient benefit that 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 the donor's <coughs> risk is is justified. Yes. So when you're talking about doing 
years to get the patients transplanted. Do you see yourself doing splits among cadaveric? Yeah, so, so the... So the splitting of a cadaveric liver is we take a, a, a whole liver and we, and we divide it so that, so that there's two pieces of liver. Typically what happens in, this, in, in the United States with that is that that liver is offered to a child, usually a, a, a small child, so a two-year-old is probably the peak age of transplantation. And so they take a quarter of the liver, the lateral segment, and, and the remaining 75% is used in an adult. So we do that, you know, every, we do that fairly often, and, and it actually has decreased the need for living donor transplant in children because children get sort of a higher priority. We have done splits where we have like a, a very small person, uh, usually a small woman, and we get offered a liver, a large liver from a, from a young donor, and then we can divide that and, and give the, the adult, small adult recipient the left lobe and the... And the um, Right lobe can be used in a, in another recipient. The problem is what you're really asking is that <clears throat> that person that would have got that liver now to to to, to uh, offer part of their liver to somebody else. Now it wouldn't have fit in them otherwise, so they wouldn't have been able to use that unless we removed part of it. So in that situation, it's it's a bit of a trade-off for the recipient. Oh, should they wait for the next one, knowing that? <clears throat> That if you if we split a liver and you just get the left side, your your morbidity related to that is higher than it. And so the question is, do I take the bird in hand or the bird in the bush, which may not come? Yes. What degree of ketosis do you accept in the donor? How do you determine that? What's your criteria? Okay, that's that's a really good question. <clears throat> Oh, sorry. The question is, how much steatosis do we accept in the donor liver, and how do we work that out? That's very important um, because, you know, obviously, as, as the body BMI index of of people in the United States has been increasing. So, what we found, what we do is we do a CT scan and a and an ultrasound during their workup. The ultrasound we found is fairly sensitive. Um, to the amount of fat, and so if they if they demonstrate steatosis on the ultrasound, what we do is we have the patient go into a, a weight loss program, and and then have them get another ultrasound and and see if their steatosis is gone. We're liberal with biopsy in that situation, so if there is steatosis on the ultrasound, we'll biopsy. You know, even after weight loss, we'll biopsy. Our our numbers probably ten. 10 to 15 percent in terms of amount of steatosis, but there can't be any hepatitis associated with that. So that's in <clears throat> in Korea. They're they're more liberal. They'll go 20 to 30 percent in terms of the amount of steatosis on the donor liver. They decrement sort of the calculation of size of the donor liver. So that's you know our sense is that <clears throat> if if there's not a lot of fat, we're, then we're okay with going forward. But <clears throat> if there's a, if there's a significant amount of steatosis. We think there's too much risk to the donor and, and also to the recipient. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.